Welcome to the Permaculture for the Future podcast. I'm your host, Josh Robinson. The world is full of negative news, and the planet seems to be in an ecological crisis. And this can be downright disheartening and disenfranchising because we feel that there's nothing that each one of us can do as an individual that can make any difference. Well, I'm here to provide a different perspective, to tell a new story. The Permaculture for the Future podcast is all about spreading positive and impactful stories, tips, and ways that each one of us can transition into a regenerative lifestyle where we can make an ecological impact. We talk about simple ways to make lifestyle changes as we interview authors, teachers, and other folks that are collectively healing ourselves and the planet. So if you want to make an ecological impact, stick around because this podcast is for you. Welcome to episode six of the Permaculture for the Future podcast. On today's show, we have another special guest that many of you might already be familiar with based on his social media accounts and all of those followers. But today we're joined here by Rob Greenfield, Now, Rob is an activist and humanitarian dedicated to leading the way to a more sustainable and just world. He embarks on extreme projects to bring attention to important global issues and inspire positive change. His life is an embodiment of Gandhi's philosophy, be the change you wish to see in the world. And in a time when many feel disempowered, Rob believes that our actions really do matter, and as individuals and communities, we have the power to improve the world around us. He's currently traveling on the 2020 World Solutions Tour, sharing solutions to our current problems, leading solution-based action days, and spreading stories of communities and people that are standing up for sustainability, truth, equality, and justice. Now, 100% of Rob's speaking honorariums for the tour are donated to indigenous and women-led grassroots organizations. Now, in my conversation with Rob, we're going to discuss his latest project that he just completed, which was growing and foraging 100% of his food for an entire year. Not an easy endeavor, and Rob is going to get into the details about how he did it and some of the challenges that he faced and some of the ways that he was able to work through those challenges to get to his goal of showing the community around us that even without a lot of experience, you can, if we put our minds to it, accomplish many things. And without further ado, here's Rob. All right. Well, welcome, Rob, to the Permaculture for the Future podcast. I'm so excited to finally get a chance to sit and chat with you about what's been happening. For our listeners that maybe have never heard of you or not familiar with the work that you do, can you talk a little bit about some of the the projects that you've been doing and just who you are? Yeah, basically, I live my life in a way where I designed it to really wake people up, to shock them, to get them to self-reflect on their own lives, to ask themselves, am I living the life that I want? Are my actions in alignment with my beliefs? Am I happy? And I do this a lot of the times through sort of extreme activism campaigns, whether it's 
living like the average American for a month and wearing all the trash that I create to create a visual of how much garbage just one person creates. Biking across the United States three times on a bamboo bicycle. Just finished a year without grocery stores, without restaurants, a year of growing and foraging literally 100% of my food. Also lived in uh, two tiny houses, one time off the grid. So these sorts of, you know, taking things to the extreme really to, to, to catch people's attention, catch mainstream media's attention and get people thinking. Yeah. I mean, so I think I, think I first met you through uh, Jonathan Zeidman in around 2011. And at that point, uh, were you, you had, a, you had a business, I think, that was selling key cards, right, <laughs> for hotels? Yeah. So in 2011, that is when I really started to wake up. I had just moved out to San Diego and I started to watch a lot of documentaries and read a lot of books and basically realized that almost everything that I was doing was causing destruction to the world. Food that I was eating, the car that I was driving and the gas that I was pumping into it, the trash that I was making, the cheap crap I was buying at the store and my business too. At the time, you know, realized that the marketing I was selling was (laughs) marketing for garbage and so that's when I started to shift my life. And over the you know, next few years, I just started to change my life uh, to, to actually live in alignment with my beliefs. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's something that is, you know, for, for a lot of people, I think the way that you've kind of gone about this, and it's not necessarily working with any particular organization, but kind of just, you know, taking it upon yourself to get out there and show people that there's another way. And I, I do remember like your first kind of cross-country uh, bike trips. And then I've definitely been following over this last year as you were diving into more food-related issues. And this time really by growing and foraging your own food for one year. So I thought we could uh, take a little bit of time and jump down and dive a little bit into that. So first off, like what was it that inspired you to want to try to grow 100% of your own food and forage? Yeah. Well, and you know, like in 2011, I woke up majorly to the destruction of the global industrial food system. And I really realized that pretty much everything on my plate that I was consuming was consuming the planet that I loved. And I started to make changes. You know, I started to try to shop local, buy food from the local farmer's market, start to eat less packaged food and start to buy whole unpackaged foods and less processed junk. Started to try to buy organic food rather than food that's sprayed with pesticides and such. And also started to, you know, especially reduce, stop eating the factory farmed meat and dairy and eggs and such and eat a lot more fruits and vegetables. And so basically, from the beginning, I had the question, though, you know, would it be possible to actually step away from all of that, step away from the global industrial food system completely, and actually, basically, some would call it live off the land, never have to take a trip to the grocery store, grow and forage 100% of my food. And that's what I decided to do. And it was both a project of deep immersion in my food to deeply understand it and connect with it. And then also at the same time, and, and see if it was possible, answer that question, is it possible? And then at the same time, do something that would really get the conversation going and mainstream about, you know, and get people really questioning their food, where it comes from, how it gets to them, what's the impact that it has on the world, and hope that when they ask those questions, if they don't find 
answers they like that I, I can empower them to change the answers by changing the way they eat. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, some people that have been in this kind of like realm of gardening or self-sufficiency or self-reliance have had notions of trying to grow their own food. And then when the reality sets in of that task, I mean, it's quite challenging to kind of step aside from all of that stuff. I mean, people have jobs that they're doing, you know, all of these things that it takes. And it it also takes a certain level of skill to be able to grow the the diversity of uh, caloric needs for our, our bodies. Now, you kind of jumped into this. And what was your level of gardening experience prior to this endeavor? Yeah, when I started, I had definitely done, I mean, I, I, had, I had definitely been passionate about food for a while. I had done my permaculture design certificate in 2016 in Guatemala. And so I had learned a lot about food, but there's a big difference between sitting in class for, you know, <laughs> two weeks and learning the, the big picture of permaculture. And then there's the big difference of just actually planting food and being there from seed to the time you can eat it. And so in reality, my actual experience with growing food was very little. When I was in San Diego, in my apartment, I had a base, one raised bed that I made in a bookshelf that I found in the alley. And then in my tiny house in 2015, I had two small four by four raised beds. So I had basically very, I mean, extremely little experience. I had grown some greens, some tomatoes, and some herbs. And so when I, you know, launched into this in Florida, I was starting from the point of researching how much water do I give to a newly planted carrot seed? How Mm -hmm. much sunlight does kale need? How much sunlight does my little greenhouse need? How long does it take once I plant something for it to sprout? I mean, I was just searching the internet for the absolute basics when I started. And I, I was actually just reviewing my garden journal today. And I remember... I was so lost and so overwhelmed when I started. Yeah, and how did you get through it? How did I get through it? Well, I, you know, I had dedicated myself to it really as a full-time thing. This was my project and I was dedicated to it. So I was spending a lot of time on it. So the best way that I got through it was with community. So I started really quickly to seek out local resources. So I went to local gardening classes, went out with local foragers, found books written by local gardeners, went to the community gardens in my neighborhood and just looked to see what was growing there. I bought my seeds as much as possible from local seed companies and bought plants from local nurseries. And that for me was really the key, was tapping into the knowledge that existed there in Orlando and not reinventing the wheel at all. And instead asking people what grows so ridiculously well that even someone who thinks they have a black thumb can walk away feeling like they have a green thumb. What you know, has very few pests, what can handle drought or lack of nutrients, and you know, what's most likely to succeed. That's how I, that was really like the bulk of making sure that things would be successful. Yeah, but it, even, okay, so I mean, there's a lot, that you're looking at there. One, you know, it seems like working with the community and the local knowledge because you ended up doing this in, is it Orlando, Florida? Yep. I'm assuming that that's a place that you didn't have a lot of experience with the climate and all of those kinds of parameters that would really dictate, you know, what the, the gardening conditions would be like. 
Now, what was it about Florida that kind of attracted you to want to choose that as a starting point? Well, a couple of things. One, there's no doubt that being in a place where you can grow food year around makes it easier for someone who's never grown any food before. I didn't have, you know, just three or four or five or six months of growing season. I had 12 months of growing season. And so this makes it a little more lenient as far as the ability to make mistakes because I can be planting year round. And so that was a really big part of it. Another part is that as I traveled through there in years past, I met people from a group called Orlando Permaculture. And I found a very much a blossoming and also grounded movement of local food growers and permaculturists. And so I was in the right place. I needed to be somewhere where the resources existed and where I could easily, you know, learn. And that existed there. And then lastly, I wanted to be somewhere warm because personally, that's where I'm happiest. And so I had moved from Southern California where I was for five years. I was actually a little tired of the lack of water and being in a desert. And so Florida was a, it's one of the few other places that's warm uh, year round. So Florida was, you know, one of the next options. Mm -hmm. And how much rain does Orlando get in an average year? I think, well, so in the winter season, which is our dry season, we get about three inches of rain per month. And then in the summer season, our wet season, it's about six to seven inches of rain. So that would probably be six times six is 36 plus three times six is 18. So 50, 60, let's say about 60 inches of rain per year. When uh-huh. I, and, I, and where I was in the, you know, of course in San Diego, as you know, it's like what, eight inches of rain or 10 inches of rain? Yeah, I mean, it can vary anywhere from, well, depending on the year and, and where you sit related to the coast. So you get a significant amount of rain. So I imagine your gardens, if, if you were kind of building organic matter and all of that, you wouldn't even really need to irrigate, right? So it's another advantage uh, with Florida's yes, climate. Yes and no. In order to not need to irrigate, well, it d- definitely the longer you establish the garden in Florida, the less need there is to irrigate. One of the big problems with central Florida and much of Florida is that it was all under the ocean for what millions of years and so it's sand so Mm -hmm. the yards the yards that i was turning into gardens were basically i don't know maybe 90 percent sand with grass over the top and because most people remove all organic matter and send it to the curb it's not like it's built soil so we're talking about not soil basically sand and so of course sand doesn't hold water and so that is one of the big challenges is building the organic material in order to be hold water so that you don't need to irrigate. And so I still, I use drip irrigation to make my life convenient because I had six different gardens in people's front yards, but no doubt a lot of what I grew was not needing to be irrigated at all. For example, the cassava or the yucca, um, you know, didn't need to be irrigated at all. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Okay. Let's kind of actually jump down that avenue that you were touching on there. You had six different gardens. And I think a lot of people that are, you know, getting into gardening or that are interested in maybe this lifestyle, one of the challenges that people often express is that they don't have access to land, right? Maybe they live in an apartment, maybe they live wherever, and they just don't have enough space to grow food. But here you were utilizing 
other people's property, right? To garden this. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Yeah. So I arrived in Orlando with no land of my own. In fact, I arrived there with just a backpack of my 111 possessions, everything that I own fitting in there. And I don't have a lot of money. I don't intend to have a lot of money. Instead, I prefer to, to share, to exchange, to barter, to you know, work exchanges or, or skill exchanges. And so what I did is I just talked to people in the neighborhood that I decided to live in. And I, I asked if they'd be interested in having their front yard turned into a garden instead of just growing grass, if they'd be interested in having a whole bunch of food. And the, the answer was almost, I mean, it was basically to the point where I had a list of yards that wanted to be gardens longer than I could ever deal with in a short period of time. And so that's what I did. And the food was free for them to eat. They could, they could eat as much as they wanted. And then after I left, you know, the idea is that I would just be there for two years. Then of course the, the gardens were theirs, so they could use them for years and years to come. So you found that process was very easily obtainable by just asking neighbors if you can plant up gardens in their yard. No doubt. And for me, it's a little different because I'm very much a person in the public and so many people know what I'm up to. And so that makes it really easy because I can put it out on social media and the word spreads very quickly. I'm also very outgoing, so it's very easy for me. So for a lot of people, it wouldn't necessarily be really easy. But that's where things like, you know, putting it out through Craigslist or Meetup or Facebook gardening groups or things like that is a way for people to be able to do this. And there's actually a a website, sharedearth.com or .org. It was put together by Sustainable America. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a place where people can post either that they have a space available for someone else to use or that they're looking for space. So that's also a great resource. Okay. Yeah, that is very helpful. I'll try to dig that up and see if we can link that in the show notes. Cool. Now, what would you say were some of the biggest lessons that you learned while going through this whole endeavor? Well, I mean, one thing that comes to mind, especially with the audience of your podcast, there's, it's, it's the dream of, I mean, so many people in permaculture to, to grow and forage all of their food and you know, to not have to buy anything that's shipped from around the world or anything packaged or processed. And there's a lot of dreamers in the permaculture movement. I'm a dreamer myself in many ways. That's, well, why I was able to do this. And I just want to say that it's really hard. I mean, there's so many aspects that we could go into over hours of talking about why it's really hard. But, you know, there's the social aspect. There is the time aspect. For many, it's the financial aspect because their time needs to be making money for paying rent and things like that. There's just the you know, self-restraint aspect. And then there's all the things we overlook, the oil, the salts, all the calories, the fat, the protein, all the nutrients, everything. And so, but all that being said, you know, 10% amazing, 50% is amazing, 70% is amazing. And I should say that it's that last 10 or 20% that's the hardest part. So 80% is so much easier than 100% if you can just buy your oil and your salt and things like that. I mean, that'd just be one, you know, one takeaway that, that would be worth sharing, I think, with the people listening to this podcast. Yeah, it's not about this lofty goal of achieving 100% of your own product, because that's often, you know, like you said, it's, it's really challenging. It's all often unobtainable. But if we maybe work as a community and, and begin to kind of like share and collectively build up 
this ability where we can provide for our own local foods, not necessarily in our own yards and gardens, but like maybe as a community of individuals coming together, that becomes a lot more obtainable. I mean, you were definitely trying to make a point and show people like, hey, this is possible. But I mean, watching some of the stuff over the last year, I mean, you were processing your own salt from seawater, making your own oil from coconuts, right? And reusing other things as well? I failed pretty much with oil for the year. I went the first nine months without oil because I made coconut oil twice, but only yielded four ounces. I, mm. I really was majorly unsuccessful with the oil. At the end, I ended up rendering fat from deer and finally had some, some cooking oil, which was a big, nice change. But yes, absolutely, community is key. And it's pretty, I mean, if you think about it, I only gave myself 10 months to prepare and went from 0% to 100% without doing it as a community. You know, I was very involved with community and I certainly had help in, in so many ways. But ultimately, it was, I was the only one that was growing and foraging all my food. And so if I can do this alone with literally starting with front lawns with no organic matter, imagine what people can do together as community. Imagine what we can do to bring food sovereignty in our communities. And, and if we're sharing and one person has just got an abundance of lemons and the other person is amazing at producing perennial tree collards, which grow so well in Southern California, and then another person maybe works with animals. I mean, through community, the time efficiency, it being so much more enjoying, enjoyable and manageable. I mean, it's truly amazing what we can do with community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you, you can't underestimate that power. And oftentimes too, like one of the things I try to tell people and, and get people excited about with these types of activities is sometimes when you're just doing it by yourself, it could be a little daunting. But if you have like, say, 10 people that all know nothing about what they're doing, but they all want to do it together, it just seems that much easier to do. And so, you know, really relying on and and fostering this connection with, with our local communities. Absolutely. Awesome. Now, you also mentioned in there that you had taken a permaculture design course down in Guatemala. And, um, how would you say that that influenced some of what you were looking at with this uh, year of growing your own food? And you know, do you feel like that uh, design course was able to help you facilitate maybe how you looked at you know, growing your garden? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't remember the exact transition of the course and how it impacted me. Of, of course, I was thinking permaculture before I took the course, but basically, I designed my systems in a very much in a permaculture type of way. And for me, you know, one of the basic ideas is working with the earth rather than against it. And for me, this is common sense. Permaculture aside, it makes sense to try to work with the earth rather than against it. It makes sense to not destroy the land that we live on, to actually, rather than depleting the soil, be adding soil and abundance and nutrients rather than losing our nutrients being adding so that each year it can produce more food and it can actually do that for ideally generations to come. To me, it makes sense to grow food that doesn't need a whole bunch of pesticides and chemicals sprayed on it, that 
can grow freely with the sun and the water and the soil below it and the air. I mean, to me, all this stuff makes sense. I think it made sense to me far before permaculture because I really consider this stuff basic common sense that we've gotten away from in our current industrial food system. Yeah, this time in our culture has enabled us to even think beyond just you know those types of activities, which are you know great grandparents and and before you know like this was just part of life. Right? Yeah. So- I guess to kind of wrap up here, what what do we have next in store for uh, you know your next kind of endeavors? Well, the, I'm writing the book about it right now. I'm actually in Costa Rica at a community called St. Michael's Sustainable Community, and they actually built a little cabin out of 95% repurposed materials inspired by me. So I'm staying in the cabin. It's called the Rob Greenfield Recycled Cabin. So that's pretty cool right now, and I'm, I'm writing this book. That book will be out in December, so you can, if people are interested in that, they can go to robgreenfield.tv slash foodfreedombook, and they can sign up to get a notification of when it comes out. 100% of my proceeds from the book will be donated to nonprofits that are working for a more sustainable and just food system. Right now, I'm going to be traveling for the whole year. Um, on what I'm calling the World Solutions Tour, and that's talking about solutions, what people can do wherever they are in the world, where they don't have to wait on government or corporations to start making positive changes in their community when it comes to food, water, energy, waste, transportation, just life, how we can live healthier, happier, more sustainable lives. So I'm traveling for a year doing that. And then also for this year, 100% of my speaking honorariums are being donated to uh, grassroots nonprofits led by women and uh, indigenous people. And um, so that's kind of my focus for the year, I would say, right now. Sounds full. Sounds busy. Yeah, busy. But Oh, and and of course, living the life, you know, really making sure that I'm leading by example by myself being happy and healthy and, and being present in the moment and with the people that I am with. And so I'm doing a lot of just personal work, you know, in life to make sure that I'm, I'm doing a good job there. Well, I appreciate it. Well, uh, thank you, Rob. So if people want to reach out to you, what would be the best way to do that? Getting through your website, the Rob Greenfield uh, TV one? Yeah, my website is, yeah, you can go to robgreenfield.org. There's so much information on there. And then right now I post mostly on Instagram, at Rob J. Greenfield, and YouTube as well, just uh, youtube.com slash Rob Greenfield. And plenty of fun and inspiring educational stuff there. Great. Well, thank you, Rob. And we look forward to kind of seeing what's next on this horizon here and definitely look forward to that book coming out in December. All right. Well, looking forward to, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well. (laughs) Yeah. Good luck with that. All right. Well, thank you, Rob. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Rob and I hope that it inspired you to get out there and make some change to do something, to maybe get beyond just our comfort zones and kind of push our boundaries a little bit. I think what Rob really exemplifies is somebody who is willing to show what is possible. Now, most of us are not going to go to the extremes that Rob does in bringing awareness to the situations around us. But 
What we can do is something. We can maybe grow a garden, and as like Rob said, we're maybe not growing a hundred percent of our own food because that is really challenging, especially when you're doing it alone. But what we can do is maybe grow ten percent. And if you're new to gardening, maybe you just start out with a garden. Get some experience under your belt. Right? Do something. Now, keep in mind that Rob also didn't have a whole lot of gardening experience prior to just jumping into this endeavor, but he made it work, and he made it work by community, by meeting people, by setting intentions and getting out there, and establishing his goals and then sticking with it. Now, as we bring this episode to a close, I want to leave with a question. I want to know from you. What is holding you back from creating the regenerative future that we all want to live in? Is it lack of knowledge or just not knowing where to start? Right, all of these things that just hold us back. I want to hear from you. What is it that's holding you back from creating that regenerative future? Right, reach out to me. Show notes for this show can be found at permacultureforthefuture.com slash episode six. And like always, if you really enjoyed the show, jump over to iTunes and please leave us a review and a rating. It really helps get our show out there and we love to hear from people. We want to know if this show is impacting you and how. So please take that time. Just get on there and just let everybody know what you think. Thanks. And I'll see you next week with guest Michael Whitman of Blue Sky Biochar to talk all about biochar and soils. So join me then. See you soon.